Hi, I'm Kurt, and this is Gigging Stories. one of my favorite parts of gigging happened when we took breaks. The older musicians would stand around and tell funny stories about things that happened on gigs. Most of the world doesn't get to experience this rich and hilarious part of music making, so I created gigging stories. Each episode features a guest and me swapping stories from gigs. So enjoy, and if you have a story to tell, please send me a message. Okay, my guest this episode is Kevin Hanlon. And Kevin was my composition teacher at SMU. And it's hard to start even to talk about how teachers influence you and stuff like that, because I would be here all day doing that instead. You can look up his resume. Um, it's been performed by Chicago Symphony. I, I recall Zimmerman was one of your big champions, wasn't he, early in the and yes. your orchestral music. And um, uh, I, while I was a student at SMU, I had the pleasure of uh, doing the piano solo on a piece of his called The Lark of Avignon when he conducted. And uh, I, the talk about the lasting influences of teachers. I mean, a, a musician stopped me uh, uh, just like two weeks ago and said, whoa, your quintuplets are so accurate. And I said, yeah, this is because Kevin Hanlon made me learn how to do accurate quintuplets. And um, I also always found him to be a very thoughtful and respectful piano, um, composition teacher. Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. so you know what I mean? Because there are sort of unthoughtful and disrespectful composition teachers sometimes. <laughs> and um, I always found you to be very... Um, you know, kept the proper amount of distance <laughs> while still well, I, providing insight and, and being thoughtful. So, yeah, well, I, I'm going to just say that one of the uh, earliest uh, musical composition lessons that I got before I began any formal training um, came from being uh, such a fan of, uh, we've probably heard of them, the Beatles. And, and I know that one of my very first lessons that actually encouraged me to even think about writing music was to um, be excited about their records from the very beginning and then just see these names that kept popping up, you know, Lennon, McCartney, and then you go, oh, well, they, you know, the fandom is just calling them John and Paul. Hmm. And then you realize, ah, okay, they're writing their own stuff. That must be the way you do it. And so then you start thinking that way. But the other thing, um, after a few years of them transforming and changing, uh, as really quite drastically they did, just going from uh, about 1962 to 70, was that one of the lessons that, uh, that I felt I learned by the time I even started any formal training was, oh, you know how you, you love the Beatles 
and you'd like to emulate the Beatles, well then don't be like them. In other words, you want to be like them? Don't be like them. <laughs> because the way that they keep pointing is, is toward um, uh, transformation and change. And so they were not even interested in uh, being themselves. Right. So if we so if we look at the you know the sixty two through sixty five Beatles, um, then they have a particular profile, and then you know by sixty six they're questioning that they're questioning what uh, their identity is, and so it would be for any composer after that to go all right I you know I love Brahms. Um, and there's certainly things I'm going to do that will be, uh, maybe, you know, one will hear the homage to Brahms, but I don't want his career and I don't want the career or output of any other composer I know, uh, and respect and love their music. But, uh, so anyway, that's a, a bit of that. And then you want, you want that attitude to, um, well, I, I wanted that attitude to, come over in my um, composition teaching as well. That mm -hmm. the idea is to help people who love music and want to compose it to self-realize, to self-actualize. Right, right. Um, I think for this episode, I'm gonna start and we're gonna react off of each other. I have two national anthem stories to tell um, this time. So back in the day, the orchestras don't do this anymore, but back in the day, they used to do a thing called coffee concerts and stuff like this. I don't know if you, you probably remember this, but they used to do like, they would do a Thursday and a Friday morning concert at about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. And then they would do a repeat of it on, on the Friday night. They were mostly marketed towards like elementary schools and retired people. At least this was a thing they did in Florida and they don't, I don't, they don't do it anymore, but there was still a thing. So the nice thing about this was my local band was the Florida orchestra and, uh, they're an excellent, excellent professional orchestra. They had a young artist competition. And if you won the young artist competition, you got to play your uh, concerto movement with the, with the band three times. Because a lot of those, you know, young artist competitions, you just get the one concert or whatever. This was nice because uh, they played in three cities. So you did a morning concert in St. Petersburg, a morning concert the next day in Clearwater. And then you got to do the Friday night concert in Tampa. And um, the, I was playing the last movement of the Ravel Two Hands Concerto. Um, pretty short pieces. I think it takes about five or six minutes to play something like that. And uh, they were doing like a Haydn, the movement of a Haydn symphony. These were hodgepodge concerts, you know. Movement of a Haydn symphony, and then they played the Mother Goose Suite by Ravel, and then I walked out and played the last movement of the Ravel Concerto. And uh, so on the Friday morning concert, this was in Ruth Eckerd Hall. And I'm not exactly sure what was going on because the guys that were backstage were not, every, every job I've ever played, all of the equity people always are in all black. And I don't know if these were just volunteers or what, but there were two old dudes in flannel shirts back there. So I suspected that they weren't equity or whatever. 
And at Ruth Eckerd, the, the uh, pit is on hydraulics. So they set up this concert where the piano was down, it was down. And then they played Mother Goose. And while the audience was applauding for Mother Goose and the director was announcing me, they were supposed to bring the pit up on hydraulics. And then I walked out to the piano. Hmm. So they play their Haydn symphony and I get backstage to where these, these guys are. And um, they finish Mother Goose and start clapping. And one of the old men pulls out a little flashlight and starts walking over to this little box on the wall. And there's a button on the wall and he pushes his thumb on the box. And there, the other guy is looking at the monitor that's got uh, the camera on the stage. And they start rehearsing this thing that goes like this. Well, uh, is, it, is it coming up yet? The guy looking at the monitor says, no, it's not coming up yet. Are you pushing the button? And the guy pushes, uh, pushes the button and says, yeah, I'm pushing the button. Is it coming up yet? The guy looking at the monitor says, no, it's not coming up yet. Are you pushing the button? The guy says, are you pushing the button? <laughs> this is going on nonstop. And, the, and, then, and then the guy that's pushing the button says, you know, I, maybe the guy, somebody might have turned it off underneath. Somebody could have turned it off underneath. Is it coming up yet? No, it's not coming up yet. Are you pushing the button? He says, yeah, I'm pushing the button. Is it coming up yet? No, it's not coming up yet. Do you think somebody turned it off underneath? By this time, I've reached the conclusion that maybe we ought to call somebody and see if they can go down underneath and turn it on. But this, this conclusion was completely eluding these two old guys. And so the orchestral director has to start vamping, which he's not very skilled at doing because I think he's not used to it. So he's like, let's go ahead and bring up the house lights and talk to our audience today. Which is pretty terrible. And uh, he says, well, I see we have some elementary school students here. And, uh, and a kid raises his hand, says, hey, would you play a song for me? <laughs> Orchestral conductor says, well, not usually in the habit of uh, taking requests at orchestral concerts, but what did you want to hear? Kid says, want to hear the Star Spangled Banner? <laughs> he goes, well, actually the band knows that song, so let's stand up and play the Star Spangled Banner for you. And in the meantime, one of the, um, uh, one of the guys, the orchestral manager had come out backstage and started calling the house people and saying, you need to go underneath and get the hydraulics turned on so we can bring the piano up. And the sort of beautiful end of that story is by the end of the, the national anthem, they had the piano up and I came out and played it. And that's a pretty um, rhythmically driving and fun piece. And in the middle of it, you think about uh, concert etiquette and stuff somebody was clapping along with the beat mm -hmm. of the song and I thought how is this happening and then I realized there were there were a whole school of uh, special needs students that had come to the concert and the kid some of the kids thought that the music was so good that they were just clapping along to the beat while I was playing. And I found it to be just the most delightful and beautiful thing I have almost ever experienced in a sort of orchestral concert playing with, a, with an orchestra like that. It was just lovely. So mm. still a funny story with those old men trying to figure out how, how the thing worked and never, never figuring it out. They never did. So.
<laughs> yeah. That, that doesn't stimulate a, a direct story, um, but it does remind me of um, a fairly constant image. Um, there was a golden era of electronic music concerts where there was no live playing whatsoever. It was just gear being turned on. Right. And, uh, you know, just tape music. But these concerts consistently, consistently had technical issues. And, <laughs> and, and some of the, the things that were on stage included, um, you know, reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders and, um, you know, hard, hardware-type mixers, um, amplification, um, and it would seem that many of these concerts really did not have enough time to complete its tech work. So it was a common thing as, as you, as you get to the end of your story and I'm just, I'm seeing, I'm seeing people stalking, you know, they're trying, they're trying to look discreet, but they're they're in the concert on the stage and they're prowling around back there trying <laughs> to problem solve the problems with the gear and um and and they're people like, like the people in the the flannel shirts they're they're not attired to be on stage right. and they've got no stage decorum whatsoever um but they're actually tremendously entertaining because otherwise we would just be staring at loudspeakers right and i don't know i mean that was a little bit before my time but i remember hearing stories about it because i remember um, my old teacher robert helps telling me one time that he went to one of those things and the reel-to-reel -reel tape was going and it was a new piece by warrenin and it started and he said we were all looking at each other saying this is even you know i don't know what this thing is and even by Warren and standards, it's, this is very, very strange. And he said, it was about a minute in that somebody came out and rewound the tape and then set it to play at twice the speed that it had been playing at before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to guess it was Times Encomium. That's probably, that's what it probably was. Probably the so. Pulitzer Prize winning Times That's right. Encomium. I remember that piece. So. Yeah. Um. Well, you do. You remember it. Well, I mean, I remember as a, an undergrad listening to that thing a lot. So. Yeah, I, what I remember about that piece. Oh no, here we're telling tales, naming names. Um, very cool beginning, and then the piece just goes on and on and on and on, and doesn't realize the promise of the of the cool beginning. Hmm. It was a golden golden age. Um, of, of that sort of thing happening. Um, well, gee, um, the, I'm going to go with the tech related, but I'm cheating a little bit here because this was done on purpose. This was so on purpose, but one of the best concerts that I was ever involved with ever was at uh, University of Texas where I did my doctorate. And there was a pretty rowdy group 
of uh, composers there, good friends, hung out a lot, and bounced off of each other and had these certain sensibilities so that in the due course of time, and also we could be very critical of uh, contemporary music making. Uh, of course, we attended to all, all, all the concerts and discussed them uh, at length, lived them. We created together an entire concert of new music that we attributed to a fictitious composer. Really? <laughs> who one of us, Kurt, Kurt Davis, played the role of Larry Cabbage. <laughs> so we composed a full-length concert of music um, and blamed it all on Larry Cabbage, who actually not only made an appearance, but the whole concert was set up to be um, a concert with interviews between the pieces. Really? So, so every piece was set up, and we had an interviewer, and he was perfect, Jeremy Halladenia who might still be on the faculty of uh, University of uh, California, Santa Barbara, and, and a, a good composer. And Jeremy was busy um, in, he actually was doing radio as a part-time job. And so had developed uh, the voice and, and uh, knew how to, um, to shape that part of it. And Kurt was such a wonderful, I don't think we'd even heard of Robin Williams at that point, but Kurt was so good at um, improvisational comedy that the idea was just that Jeremy was going to be the straight man. The straight man, and ask, ask him questions. Ask legitimate questions and Kurt would just go off. And then the pieces would play. Well, and, and, you know, and there's, oh my God, there's stories for every single one of those pieces, in, including uh, the one that I wrote that's notorious and and uh, almost caused a riot in uh, later at University of Arizona. That's another story. That's a different story. I'm not going to talk about that piece. I'm going to talk about the last piece, which had to do, that was a parody of technology. And it, basically, the piece was called a demonstration of the um, Cabbage Abruzzi Synapse Enhancer. So that's really what it was. Was uh, and, and this is going to end the evening's concert because um, Larry Cabbage had been collaborating with um, a tech guy, uh, Nathan Abruzzi. Nathan Abruzzi. Still remember the name? Um, <laughs> uh, who totally didn't exist. Um, on a device that would enhance the performing capabilities of musicians. And for the demonstration, um, I think it was a, a quintet or a sextet that came out and everybody had electrodes attached to them. They all had electrodes and wires that ran into their clothing uh -huh. and including the page turner. More on that, everybody had to have that and and then out came a lab coded assistant with with some just electronic junk uh -huh. on a you know on a cart this got wheeled out and 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 larry cabbage is setting this up and he's saying okay here we've we've 
got the finest, finest performers. He really emphasized that finest performers um, to play uh, this arrangement of Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag without, without the use of the Synapse Enhancer. And that in itself was hilarious because on purpose they were instructed to play awful right. because they were paragons, paragons of University of Texas performers. So just this, <laughs> and just, you know, sloppy, uh -huh. lapdash performance. <laughs> it's like, okay, now we are going to, we're going to switch on. We're going to turn on the Synapse Enhancer. <laughs> and we were so goofy. We're so incredibly goofy that when the, when the, the lab uh, person uh, flicked the switch, there was somebody backstage who just went, <laughs> made a sound, made an electronic sound backstage. Like, and, and, and then everybody who had an electrode on them perked up, just kind of, <laughs> just kind of perked up. And they started the piece again, and it was very, very crisp, very crisp, very crisply played until things began to go horribly, terribly wrong. Each, each player in their own way began to have convulsions. At one point, the bassoonists just collapsed like Curly from the Three Stooges <laughs> on the ground, like rotating around, desperately trying to play their instrument. The pianist's hands were convulsed and started <laughs> you know, thrashing at the keys and the page turner, the page turner also fell to the ground, which allowed him, allowed the page turner to reach in his jacket and spray and spray a shaving cream all over his lower jaws so that it was more effective when he ran shrieking into the audience at the end. And the concert ended in a complete meltdown just a complete chaos <laughs> everything coming apart because of the uh cabbage abruzzi synapse <laughs> enhancer nobody does music like that at universities anymore <laughs> that's wonderful uh <laughs> yeah, larry cabbage story came from so when I was at University of Nebraska I played all of the graduation ceremonies and so six times a year you had a fall and a spring and a summer graduation and on Fridays we would do the um, master's and doctoral student hooding and then on on Saturdays undergrad sometimes that flipped a little bit and and sometimes Fridays was only doctoral hoodings and then Saturdays was undergrads and, and master students it just depended on how many people were graduating originally it was just played by the faculty brass quintet but the 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 march in 
to get all of those students in to graduate from the university was getting, sometimes it was 30 minutes long. It was just a dreadful thing. And those guys were playing Elgar for 30 minutes and their lips were bleeding. So they just said, we can't, we can't play for 30 minutes solid and then play for other stuff. So we need an organist to take turns. So they said, okay, we got to play organ for this thing. And basically we're sort of, trading off on the Elgar and I'm, I'm playing, basically I play all the time and the brass comes in and plays and then they can lay out while we get people in. And then as the classes are graduating from the different colleges, I'm playing music. And so they said, you know, we just want some uh, graduate appropriate music to play. And of course, you know, the worst part about doing, um, a job like this is the people that are giving you instructions are a committee that are fulfilling their service obligation to the university mm -hmm. and you've got a committee made up of PhDs who are all the smartest person that they know you know and they don't know they don't know anything about music necessarily but yes. they're the smartest person they know and so they I know guess, how yes, I mean, uh... Evidence of that is anytime, anytime you ever watch the show Jeopardy and there's a music category, these brilliant people, these brilliant people won't touch it. That's won't right. touch it very bitter end. That's right. It never, it never fails. Never fails. So they say, you know, graduate appropriate music. So I go in the first time and, you know, it was like a, a fall graduation or whatever. And I played it. And it's sort of a running joke amongst organists. I brought in my Oxford wedding book because we use the same book for weddings, funerals and graduation ceremonies full of handle marches and those, you know, um, uh, those sort of non-specific British 20th century, like it's like Matthias and Carter and all those people that were like, um, you know, they, they were all influenced by Britain. So strong, clear melodies with crunchy chords underneath that people will still like mm. to listen to mm. all of that stuff. So I, I played, uh, you know, all of that stuff. And after the first time, the committee came back and they said, that was really, really great. We would like, um, we would like some of it to be a little bit peppier next time. We would like to have a little more pep in it. Mm -hmm. I said, no problem. I will take care of that for next time. So spring graduation comes around, bring them the Oxford wedding book, play all the exact same pieces the second time. <laughs> they said, you know, committee comes back after that one and they say, oh, that was really great. Thank you for making it peppier this time. There's just one thing. Um, some of it sounded a little bit like traveling music. I was thinking, well, they're walking, you know, like, uh, but we would like it. N no traveling music next time. Just keep the peppy stuff. So I said what I always say, no problem. I can do that. Summer graduation comes around, bring in the Oxford wedding book, play all the same music, third time in a row. <laughs> Committee says, that was perfect. Whatever you did that time, just keep it. And I said, no problem. <laughs> happy to, happy to yeah. do it. I'm glad we got it all sorted. And <laughs> so the beginning of this, uh, you know, the first thing that happens is that um, after you get all the people marched in, somebody stands up and starts the ceremony 
and uh, the faculty brass would play the national anthem, and they would always have a music major sing the national anthem. Mm. One year, the same committee that organizes all of this stuff told the color guard when the faculty brass starts the national anthem, dip the flag down. That's when you're, that's your sign to dip the flag or whatever they do. They, the color guard does something to the, to whatever flags they carry. I don't know, but you know, I, I, maybe it's the university flag has to, I don't know whatever, but they said, you know, do the thing where you dip the flag when the brass starts playing. Hmm. And they came over to the brass and they said, when the color guard dips the flag, that's your cue to start playing. <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> so we get everybody marched in, somebody greets, and the color guard looks over, waiting for the brass to start playing. And the brass is looking at the color guard, waiting for them to dip the flag to, for their cue to start playing, and nobody does anything. And, you know, it's weird to think about, but at these graduation ceremonies that you're playing, it's probably the biggest audience that I regularly played for. It was like 10,000 people in a giant basketball stadium. So you're there with 10,000 other people. And the other, I should digress here for a moment. Inevitably, when I was playing while graduates were walking across, no matter what piece I was playing for what class, someone always was sitting above me in the stands with an air horn that was a half step above whatever key I was playing in. <laughs> so that when their, their person walked across, they would just always be a half step higher on their air horn. But anyway, so there's this moment of just incredibly awkward silence where 10,000 people are waiting to see what's going to happen and nobody does anything. How long did that go on? Well, not too long. But how long did it feel? Uh, well, uh, you know, it feels like an eternity. But yeah. after probably 10 seconds, the singer that doesn't know what, what to do turns and he's right next to the chancellor of the university. And um, the singer turns to the chancellor and says, what, what should I do? <laughs> and the chancellor says, you should just sing. And this was a tenor. And he, in his nervousness or whatever else, just decided to start the national anthem on his own. Mm. And as soon as he started, he was singing in F major. And I knew it. And the brass, I, 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 <laughs> I don't know. We all looked at each other because we knew he was an F major. And I'm letting musicians now calculate out what the implications <laughs> of that are. And he was a good high tenor. So he was okay on the A section. But then when he got to And the Rocket's Red Glare, it was mm -hmm. clearly way beyond what he was doing. Because you're talking about a high C, and he wasn't that kind of tenor. Mm. I, I don't know how to describe what it was like, but it was, it was painfully a cappella. And uh, the closest thing I can say is it was sort of like a, a female impersonator. Is what it sort of sounded. <laughs> I can't sing it at that pitch for sure. But we got an... 
to see a boy standing up there singing in this way. It was just painful. But there was nothing you could do. I mean, the brass only knew how to play it in B flat, so they couldn't yeah. they couldn't change. And that was the oh, national wow. anthem that that uh, that ceremony. <laughs> Oh, who was who was that diva that that uh, you know? I think Meryl Streep played her in something recently. Uh, oh dear, um, sorry, probably shouldn't bring up a name when I don't know it. Um, because there there was some. Oh, oh, you're talking about Florence Foster Jenkins. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of effect, yeah. very very plummy, and uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. Oh dear. Oh, that's yeah. Um, and it's got the the bonus of the of the university committee in that story that I really love. <laughs> well, I you know, ten seconds, ten seconds with expectation of something to happen. I can just you can know this um, that John Cage would have loved that. Oh yes, he would have. <laughs> he would have loved that, and he would have loved. You know, I mean, I. As, as you were telling that part of the story, I'm just like going, oh, oh, that would have been so amazing if at some point, like maybe the seven second mark, you could just hear a dog barking. In the <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, but that's where, that, that would have been, you know, uh, given that today was a big day in terms of changing the chord on the organ, um, you know, the, the piece that's going to keep going. Oh, for the, oh uh, yeah. As, as slow as possible. Yeah, yeah. They're changing the chord today. For those of you that don't know, there's a piece that John, one of the eternal principles of art is that no matter how crazy your idea is, there's some rich German that will pay for it. And the two prime examples of this are the helicopter quartet by... Uh, uh, Who's that? Stockhausen. Stockhausen helicopter quartet, where each member of the string quartet has to be flying in a separate helicopter. And that got performed. And there's a piece by John Cage called As Slow as Possible that someone has set up to play on an organ. And I think the, the notes change every couple of years or something like that. It's supposed to take 600 years to play, but it's called As Slow as Possible, ASAP, and you can go on to the website. Um, some German has built an organ, and they've got uh, key weights holding the pitches down, and it's inside an enclosed container. So if you want to actually hear it, you have to go inside the container, but they change, um, they change a note on the chord once every couple of years, it seems like, and yeah. there's a big to-do about it. Well, it's, it's got, but I think it's quite charming uh, in that um, the, the length of the piece is calculated to the, I guess, the expected life, uh, the, the typical expected life of an organ. Oh. That that was the, the 600 plus year oh, okay. calculation um, to begin the whole thing. And there's something lovely about it because there's nothing in our culture like uh, building cathedrals anymore, where you're set off on a mm -hmm. project that lasts longer that you'll never see the end of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that there's um, I, I, I that's another part of uh, being a musician and a composer that is really it makes every day I think truly interesting, and that is connections. Just to um, continually observe connections. And even if it comes to something that a person might reasonably think is absurd or weird, um, when you think about that foundation for that particular piece, then you kind of go, 
that you know it it follows it follows that um that's interesting mm. that that notion the the notion the idea is interesting and um and you know i i'd say i still uh i still feel um influenced by cage yeah. i don't think i don't think anything i've ever written um sounds like what he would write which is again exactly the point the, the whole notion of of uh trying to repeat cage in some fashion but to you know but that influence of that way of thinking um yeah i would stay i would I say just, that i just that. went back recently and re-listened to they're on youtube so you can look them up all of the conversations that they uh he and morton feldman had on the radio in in um the 70s they're really good there's five youtube videos of just john cage and morton feldman just talking to each other yeah and they're really excellent and funny they're very funny too yeah he 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 loved to laugh were you at smu when he was there no ah uh, i think uh, it was the year before i came yeah maybe or something yeah. No, I couldn't have been because he died when I was an undergrad. I remember because we put on a performance of 433. So it must have been a couple of years before him. No, he was, he, he was wonderful, really. Really nice to get to know him a little. Sometimes it's good to be old. <laughs> I, um, and I don't know, this isn't much of a, because, I, I, I was thinking national anthem stories, national anthem stories. And, and it's like, I don't think I have. A, and then it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, this was, but it was, this was fun. And okay. So I played in a group um, called Zagfield and, oh, there's lots of stories uh, about Zagfield um, and very, very interesting, uh, clever people. This was back in high school though. And we only played original music. And I've uh, got some uh, terrible stories of being threatened by audiences and uh, how alienating we could be in our uh, originality, which we were committed to and, and um, quite dedicated to it. And I think really shaped me as a composer because ultimately that paid off and, um, and Sagfield could actually draw really large audiences just for little old South Bend, Indiana as we just stuck to it, we stuck to the crazy thing. Well, just the the initial craziness of doing the music that we wanted to do, and we weren't particularly good players, but we but we were interesting players, and we built on that. But I know there was one concert we played where uh, we did start the concert off with um, the national anthem, but it was not. It wasn't typical at all. It was something where the melody was held together and pretty ramshackle given my clarinet playing. I remember playing that on, uh, I still own that uh, old B flat clarinet, but then uh, I think uh, the, the real heavy lifting was done by the other guitarist who is also uh, a pretty good violin player and actually went on to be a much better violin player. He studied with uh, Ruggiero Ricci at Indiana University. Um, 
And so between the two of us, we kind of held that down. And, but it was, you know, it was, we were there, you know, as a rock band, as an experimental rock band, but here we are starting off this show. And I think it was actually a Halloween show. And so I think I see Tom Wellen in his Uncle Sam suit. It's this guy with long, long, wavy Robert Plant-like hair, but in an Uncle Sam suit. And I'm wearing, I remember on purpose because my mom insisted that I get my hair cut, something that was a real, uh, real tumult back at home was huh? like, cut your hair. And so I got typecast as the jock and I ended up wearing the bass player who had actually played some football but could grow his hair long, I ended up wearing his letter jacket because here I am on stage playing the jock, playing clarinet for uh -huh. your national anthem. So we made this big deal out of, and now, ladies and gentlemen, your national anthem. We used to play commercials between songs and stuff. And we played, you know, this, and then somebody yelled, play ball, and a football was thrown out into the audience. I mean, <laughs> it was just um, this odd theater. I know that at times given, uh, and the violence was also Norwegian. So we did play some of uh, uh, Edvard Grieg's incidental music. In, again, in our odd fashion. Um, and one that was beautiful in particular, I thought, was when the drummer got up and did dramatic readings from Pierre Gant while we played, <laughs> while we played Morning. And, you know, and that's what we did. We did that besides playing um, rock music of some sort. Um, and I think it was delightful that there was a truly dedicated audience. Yeah, right. Not for this particular group because who else was doing that? You know, and 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 as far as uh, we're concerned, um, it's like, well, yeah, everybody could be doing that, and that's great. You know, I mean, could be doing whatever um, whatever their particular interests were. They could follow, pursue those interests instead of covering top twenty. Right. You know, that was that was a big decision back then when, you know, live music was uh, the thing and you didn't have DJ and disco type things going on. Uh, it was all live music. And so there was this pressure of are you going to be a, a top? Well, I guess top 40, top 40 type band or are you going to do originals? Hmm. And uh, the 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 outfits that I gravitated to were the ones that played original music. Hmm. Um, uh, this just came up. I don't know why what you said <laughs> brought this up and the difference between uh, the DJ scene and all of that. But uh, I played a funeral yesterday, a, a, an odd, odd thing. And it was, it was not really a funeral. It was a reception for somebody that had died. And we were outside mm -hmm. on a hill in the shade. I got the call to play it from a friend and it's just a they wanted Frank Sinatra tunes. So and it's a jazz trio. It's me, bass and drums. The mm -hmm. bassist is the leader of the band. And I've never done this at a gig before in my life. He says into the microphone at some point, You guys want us to play a song, we'll play it. We don't care. We don't care what it is. I don't care what style, anything. We'll play it. You make a request, we'll play it. <laughs> Country and Western, you want to just play, we'll do whatever you want us to play. And the first one that came up, one of the grandkids came up and said something like, 
hey, will you play that country and western song, I, I Wish Grandpas Didn't Die, or something like that. He said, yep, we're going to play that song for you. And I was like, what is going on here? Because <laughs> I've never had a band leader do this before. And he pulled out his phone and plugged it into the speakers and pulled up that song, which is as bad a country song as you might imagine it was. You know, mm-hmm. I wish dogs were all yellow and kids didn't get in trouble for drinking beer. And I wish grandpas never died or whatever. It's like that. And all of the country songs, too, are, um, you know, not, I don't know if you've noticed this, but they're all in weird keys now. They're all in like F sharp and B major and stuff like that. They're not in cowboy chord keys, but whatever. Oh, too much capo. I, I think so. But I've never had this on a gig before. He played the song on the, on the, over the speakers. And as soon as it was done, he would stop it and he'd say, now we're going to play it for you. Huh? <laughs> and <laughs> you had one try to get it and then you just sort of did the best you could to make it through and the band played through the song <laughs> and um. he did it four different times on the gig people came up and requested songs that nobody had ever heard before and he played it one time and then you got to play it back as best you could <laughs> well yeah this this actually brings up a really really happy memory um and and was actually deeply formative i would say um, and that was uh, one of the other original groups was booked to, it, it almost seemed like a nightclub. Yeah, a nightclub like in a, a mall, which was weird at the time. Really weird because that was like 1970, 71. And um, we, were, we were second on the bill, but the, the third person was a headliner. And, um, and that person was uh, Gary U.S. Bonds, who had actually had some hits. And while we're sitting there watching the first band, we receive word um, that we are uh, Gary U.S. Bonds' backing band. Oh! <laughs> and <laughs> the thing is, is, is we actually knew some of his hits. Like there's one called New Orleans. I said, hey, 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 yeah, hey, 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 yeah. I said, hey, 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 yeah. Come on, everybody, won't you come with me? down in New Orleans, you know. And uh, we knew that and we like it. And uh, there was also another one called Quarter to Three. And basically, you know, he was a New Orleans R&B guy. And we just kind of you know, we maybe looked at each other a little wide-eyed and we just said, yeah. Okay. It was, a, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. It was just uh, what would happen and just be like this little bit of a conference, a little bit of a conference. The keyboard player uh, played a Hammond B3 and uh, bass player and I would just figure out, you know, he'd sing a little bit to us and, and we go, oh, it's in, it's in G, you know, or it's in mm-hmm. B flat and B flat. Here we go. And we would just go. We just went and played, and he had a great time, and we had a great time. And that was something where, you know, you get to the end of that kind of experience, and you're just like going, oh, I, this is wonderful. I, you know, I love this. This it's, is great. It is. It's the best. And it's why I've become so committed to um, being involved in improvisation over the past 10 years. It's just become a yeah. bigger and bigger part of what I want to do because I want to bring that sensibility to 
everything that I do, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I really do. And all of the, it's one of the reasons that I moved to Kansas city to play for Casey Corral because playing for Charles Gruffy, unlike most conductors that I play for, um, most conductors that you play for, you rehearse the thing for, so that you can learn how it goes. And then when you do the concert, you do it how you practice it. And yeah. with Charles and Casey Corral, you're rehearsing sensitivity to his gesture because you don't know what's going to happen in the actual concert. It's going to be a spontaneous event that's going to be different than any time you rehearsed it. And yeah. the danger of that is sometimes it doesn't go well, but mm. when it does, it's the most magical thing in the earth because it's so fresh and spontaneous and wonderful. And the other thing that you, you learn too is you, you learn to appreciate the, uh, the doesn't go well from the standpoint, again, this is, um, you know, we're uh, referring to Cage a little bit. And that is, it is. It is. It is. And, and you'll, you know, you can think, oh, that's, that's interesting. And, and then you, you know, then you make calculations uh, about how things are going to continue from there. But it's not all wrapped up in a, a, a you know, terrible uh, negativity. Right. It's it's um, it allows you to it allows you just to continue some sort of a flow, and if there was a, a better flow, the the one where you can't believe how well things are going, this spontaneously, um, it really serves that. It really serves that flow where you know it's feeling really great, and you know that it's absolutely spontaneous and. You know, you're part of the cast of a Christopher Guest movie. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. If you like those movies. I and do. I do. I do yeah. like those movies. I do. I do. But you know that's how they do it. It's um, evidently all of that best in show. Um, oh, boy, what a, a mighty wind. Right. But none of that dialogue was written. Not a single word. Right. Yeah. And, and isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful but uh that that's a great thing that they're doing yeah